We're going through our Advent series, and while it's been an unusual week here at the church, we recognize that um, God ordains just the, the right passages for the right times. And so this morning we're looking for Hebrews chapter 2, and we're thinking about the incarnation. We're thinking about Jesus taking on flesh, and we're going to see how this has, I think, uh, not only relevance to our celebrations of his coming but also, um, I think, just dealing with the realities of, of what we're facing uh, this week. So we're looking for Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And I'll read, we're going to cover verses 14 to 18. So I'm just going to read those verses for us. And then we'll, we'll get down to, to dealing with uh, what's here. Okay, so this is the word of God in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Over the course of the last three plus years, we've walked along with the Aberleys as Marie dealt with different aspects of cancer. And as Mike and Marie walked through those difficult days together, we observed Mike basically get two doctorates uh, in, in medicine at the time. I mean, he took, he took so seriously the need to advocate for Marie that he, he, he just immersed himself in knowing the terminology. And I know several doctors commented to him how impressed they were at his knowledge of, of medicine. And of course, his response, well, it's my beloved. I mean, what, what am I going to do? I'm not just going to sit on the sidelines. Like, I want to engage with her and advocate for her. Now, that is right and good for Mike as a husband to do that, right? It's, it's the right thing to do for him to advocate for his beloved. But his advocacy wasn't arbitrary. He had a legal basis for representing Marie in those conversations and, and, and hearing the diagnoses and working with those doctors to find the best aspect of care for her. If I had gone into those doctors and I said, well, I'm Marie Aberley's pastor and I'm an important person in her life and therefore uh, you should share with me that information, the doctors would have said, no, that's not appropriate. You, you, you shouldn't have that information. It's not for you. You don't have a legal basis for being her advocate. Advocacy isn't arbitrary. It has to be legitimate, which leads us to an important concept that relates to the incarnation. The fact is this. We need an advocate. You know, a a patient needs an advocate because a patient can't always hear all the details, remember all the details. A patient can't always, they're not even sometimes always conscious to be able to make decisions that need to be made. They need help. And in the same exact way, you and I, we need help. Because of our sin, we need advocacy. You might this morning, as we come to the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 2, just ask the question, how do you need help? You could recognize what are areas in your life where you have struggled with sin. And that could be years past. 
It could be months past. It could be just days. But the fact is, we all are sinners and therefore struggle with sin and therefore need help. You could ask the question, how have I failed? How have I failed in my speech? How have I failed in my actions? How have I failed in attitudes that I've been harboring? And in acknowledging those failures, in acknowledging our sin, we are saying we need help. I need advocacy. I need an advocate. Although it's painful to acknowledge our sin and our failure, it's an essential step in grasping the significance of the incarnation. Because the fact is, Jesus took on flesh precisely because we need an advocate. And Hebrews chapter 2 explains how this works. Now, we haven't been in Hebrews uh, recently, so let me just catch you up to speed, okay? The, the author of Hebrews writes what is likely a, uh, an, a letter that's a development of sermons given from given passages in the Old Testament. Right? And as he writes this letter to believers, he is encouraging believers to consider specifically the fact that Jesus Christ is our great high priest, okay? Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than you name it. He's better. And so what happens in chapter 2 is he argues specifically that Jesus is better than the angels, except for a little while he was made lower than the angels. And when he's talking about Jesus being made lower than the angels, he's talking about Jesus becoming human, Jesus taking on flesh. And again, the word for that that we often use is incarnation, okay? That he took on flesh for us. That the eternal second person of the Trinity was born, right, as a human. And this is one of those eternal mysteries that we find in God's word. It is certainly something that, that stretches our capacity to understand. But nonetheless, it's, it's fairly straightforward that Jesus took on flesh for us. So the, the question we have is why? And the author of Hebrews explains that this is key, that the incarnation is key to, to us receiving the benefits of the gospel. But watch how he explains this, just how how it helps us. We'll start in verse 14. So we're in the middle of this argument. Again, Jesus became lower than the angels, but he did so to bring sons and daughters to glory. That's you and me. We're picking it up now in verse 14. So in Hebrews 2, looking at verse 14, listen to the word of God. He says, now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared these. I want to pause right there in the middle of verse 14 before we go farther. The children, the people that Jesus came to rescue, they have flesh and blood in common. We share the affliction of flesh and blood. But notice what he says. Since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. Jesus became human. He took on flesh to share with you and me flesh and blood so that he could legitimately be part of our family. Again, advocacy isn't arbitrary. Right? In order to represent us, he had to become one of us. And so Jesus also shared in these. When you see that phrase, Jesus shared in these, also shared in these, that's talking about Christmas morning. That's talking about incarnation. That's the word of God became flesh, right? So now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. Why? So that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death that is the devil. If you we see a second, second aspect of this in verse 15, but just notice there the purpose. Jesus took on flesh and blood so that he could die. Sometimes we have a mistaken understanding of the nature of Jesus' humanity. 
Sometimes we feel like Jesus is like uh, Clark Kent. I don't know if you're familiar with the Superman narrative. Uh, so, but the Superman stories, you know, Clark Kent, you know, he's this mild-mannered reporter. I know he's kind of a nerd. And he wears glasses. He's probably about, I don't know, my height. Anyway, uh, he, you know, he, he goes around and he does his thing. You know, he's, he's working at the Daily Planet. But like, you know, Clark Kent is still Superman. And so, you know, he never stubs his toe. And if he trips on the sidewalk, he doesn't, he doesn't bleed, okay? And if somebody throws something at him, it's just going to bounce right off of his Superman chest because he's always impervious to assault, right? Sometimes we think of Jesus in those terms, that when Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, when he took on flesh, that he was like bulletproof, right? But that is not true. The fact is that Jesus took on flesh precisely so that he could be vulnerable physically, to death. This means that Jesus' body bruised. This means that Jesus was subject to sickness. This means that if Jesus was cut, he would bleed. And it means that Jesus knowingly went to the cross in order to experience all that and more. Jesus shared in our flesh and blood so that through his death, so that he could die, he might be victorious. Notice again the end of verse 14. Jesus died, or Jesus shared in in flesh and blood, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. I've said it before, I'll say it again, and I'm selling t-shirts. The devil is a loser. He's lost. He's already lost. It's over. It's done. But what's remarkable is the manner of his defeat. The devil has lost through Jesus being willing to die in our place. The incarnation is the beginning of this process. Jesus takes on flesh so that that flesh can bleed for us on the cross. Jesus, in his death, accomplishes the death of death, as my friend John Owen said. We find in Jesus' death the death of death. But specifically here, the author of Hebrews focuses on it's the death of death because Jesus has defeated the devil. It's important just to note as a side note that that the devil has been active in opposing the mission of the gospel, right, uh, since, his, since his heavenly defeat. I mean, that's what we find in Revelation chapter 12, that, that Satan has already lost, and yet he's raging against the church. Well, as he's raging against the church, he wants to prevent the mission from being accomplished. This is why he, he takes Jesus uh, you know, in the wilderness and, and takes that opportunity to, to tempt him. He's trying to derail the mission. This is why he inspires uh, uh, Judas to betray Jesus And in all of Satan's active work to thwart the mission of the gospel, he can't stop it. And Jesus, as he dies, no doubt Satan thought, I've won. And it is through the death of Jesus on our behalf, through Jesus experiencing that most human of vulnerabilities, death, that the devil was defeated. Now, of course, the rest of the story is that death is defeated by virtue of Jesus' death and his resurrection. But the point is that the devil lost. And so, there's an important corollary for us. Look at verse 15. So he, he, he shared in these, flesh and blood, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. This is a beautiful verse. 
It relates to the incarnation because it tells us why Jesus took on flesh and blood. He took on flesh and blood so that he could die. And in dying, he could become the victorious champion and defeat death and the devil. But as he does so, he unlocks for you and me freedom from the fear of death or freedom from slavery to the fear of death. Listen, I can't tell you how hard we, especially in Western cultures and American culture, how hard we work to avoid thinking about death. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to experience it. And yet you get to a certain point in your life and you realize that one way or another, if the Lord tarries, death is coming for you. And if you haven't figured that out yet, you're young and, you know, enjoy the days because it's that day's coming, okay? When you are going to be painfully made aware of your mortality, But what happens in our culture is that we have, uh, and it's not just our culture, it's worldwide, there's this slavery to the fear of death that people have. They're they're shackled to the fear of death. We saw it so clearly uh, during the COVID crisis, where it's just, it's the fear of death. It was was so evident and obvious in everyone's decision-making, right, globally. It was like all they wanted to do was not die. But do you realize that because Jesus was born and laid in a manger... Because he took on flesh like you and me and had flesh and blood like you and me. Because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became God incarnate. Because of that, he died. And because he died, he has freed us from slavery to the fear of death. Listen, uh, I said it in Sunday school. I'll say it this morning. I don't want to ruin your Christmas. You're going to die. I mean, should the Lord tarry? You will experience death. And I would say that it's been a privilege for me to walk with brothers and sisters in this church body as they have died because they have modeled to me how to navigate that trial in dependence on the Lord. But brothers and sisters, one of the things that you need not live with is slavery to the fear of death. We don't have to fear death because Jesus has defeated the one who holds the power of death, the devil. He defeated it through his death and his resurrection. It's so interesting that these benefits are meant to be specifically applied to our situation. That's what verse 16 says. Just watch verse 16. The author of Hebrews goes on. He says, For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. There are fallen angels. We usually use the term demons for fallen angels. But the fact is, as far as we can see from Scripture, fallen angels do not have the opportunity for redemption, that they will be judged They're reserved for judgment and will be judged for eternity. The fact is, though, that although angels have fallen and and some angels have fallen and chosen that rebellion, the fact is that God is in the business of rescuing sinful people. And so here he just says, if you're an angel, well, that's it's on you. But if you if you are if you are a human being, that's what he means by Abraham's offspring here. If you are a human being, then guess what? You have the opportunity to be freed from slavery to the fear of death. He is reaching out to rescue us. Isn't that exactly what the incarnation is? That he takes on flesh to rescue us, to advocate for us, to share in flesh and blood as we have? We learned this morning, I think in verses 14 to 16, that Jesus is with us and for us by defeating death and the devil. It's pretty straightforward, but it's important for us to remember This is the purpose of the incarnation. Jesus shared in flesh and blood so that his flesh and blood could suffer. 
And as he died, he destroys death and defeats the devil. And it all started with him being born. Listen, I don't know what your, your family Christmas traditions are, but whatever they are, it's crucial that you keep this in view. This is why it's worth celebrating. This is why it's worth singing about. This is why it's worth taking time to just note and think, you know what, it is so remarkable that the eternal second person of the Trinity took on flesh for me to rescue and to help me, to advocate for me. He is the victorious conqueror. He's conquered death and he's conquered the devil, which, by the way, just tells us that we have very real hope as we navigate our lives. We don't have to give in to Satan's attacks. And again, he is still attacking. You can see Ephesians 6 or 2 Corinthians 10. He is still seeking to harm believers and to tempt us and to draw us into sin. And yet we need not give in to that temptation. We can acknowledge that he has already lost the key battle in the war. And therefore, we can say no to that temptation. Jesus is the victorious conqueror, but it's just, it's a victory that we never could have predicted. He's victorious through suffering and death. He took on flesh so that he could experience that for you and me. Now, what kind of help is this help? Well, this is where, this is where we see, I think, some beautiful truths that flow directly out of the incarnation. Watch verse 17 as the author of Hebrews continues. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Just pause there, verse 17. Let's look at this together. Therefore, okay, in light of the fact that Jesus took on flesh and blood and has been victorious over the devil and over death through his own death, therefore, the author of Hebrews says, he had to be like his brothers and sisters. Why? So he could advocate for us. So he could, I'll use another term, represent us. Note the rest of the verse. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters, you and me, in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, there's a lot here, but let's just talk about what it meant to be the high priest. Here, the author of Hebrews is drawing this straight out of the Old Testament. And as he does so, he's expecting the reader to to carry with them some of this information. Priests functioned as representatives of the people to God. So you might think of it this way. This is often an analogy we use. Prophets spoke to the people for God. So they spoke on God's behalf to the people. Priests represented the people to God. They stood on behalf of the people and went and offered sacrifice to the Lord. The high priest was the one who offered the chief sacrifice on the Day of Atonement once a year. He was the leader in this, right? And so when, when the author of Hebrews takes that high priest terminology and he applies it to Jesus, as we find it in other places in the New Testament, he expects you to understand that this means that Jesus is your legal representative before God. He is your spiritual representative before God. He took on flesh so he would be qualified to stand in your place and to argue on your behalf, to represent you, to represent you before God the Father. Again, verse 17. That's why he had to be like his brothers and sisters. You notice the language there? It's not, it, wasn't, it wasn't just, oh, this is an option. The author of Hebrews says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this had to be. The incarnation had to happen for this to work. 
He had to take on flesh and blood in order to be your high priest. And so therefore, he had to be like us in every way. And man, this is such a setup. In every way. I mentioned earlier, just thinking about your own weaknesses, your own failings, your own sin, why you need help. You think about the things about you that you're most embarrassed about, the things about you that you would blush if others knew, the things about you that would, would bring you shame. And you think about those struggles and those feelings of insecurity and the, the pain and, and whether it's things you've done or things that have been done to you, either way, we recognize here that Jesus had to be made like us in every way. He'll talk more about that, but you just, you just need to hear some grace and comfort and compassion in those words. Jesus understands your struggle. Watch, he goes on in verse 17. So he had to be made like us in every way so that he could become a high priest. But not just a high priest. Note the words that we find here by the inspiration of the Spirit so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful means, guess what? Merciful, right? He is the one who offers mercy. And again, that's what the high priest facilitated. Because of the high priest's ministry, people were shown mercy by virtue of the sacrifice offered. And here Jesus is our high priest and he facilitates mercy. You're here this morning. You are a sinner. You need mercy from God for your sin. Where will you find it? You cannot find it in your own efforts. You can only find it in Jesus Christ, your representative. It's because he is a merciful high priest who pleads on your behalf that that we are forgiven and shown grace. It's so good because if it was anything else, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. And by the way, isn't that one of Satan's strategies? To just tweak the gospel enough so that it seems plausible, but it doesn't actually focus on Christ? Yes, the average person today, how will you be made right with God or on what basis should God accept you or forgive you? The average person today will say, well, because I've done X, Y, and Z. And I'm not as bad as this person or that person. And they are banking their eternal future on their own performance. And yet here in in the word of God, we find out that Jesus became like us so that he could become our merciful high priest. Merciful, though, and secondly, faithful. Now, this is an important concept. And a little later in Hebrews, it will be further explained that Jesus is faithful in that he actually does what needs to be done, specifically in offering himself as the sacrifice. So now we've got two things going on. Jesus is our high priest who offers a sacrifice, but then also he's the sacrifice. How can he sacrifice himself? How can he die? Because he shares in flesh and blood like we have because of the incarnation. The incarnation had to be if you're going to be be represented faithfully. The incarnation had to be if Jesus was not only going to represent us, but if he was going to offer himself for us. He is faithful. He got it done. I I just would would suggest to you that it it is worth five minutes of your time to sit and to think about what it means that Jesus, knowing what he was walking into, went to Jerusalem that last Passion Week and took on the cross and carried it through those streets. You, you need to know that he knew what was coming. And he is the faithful high priest 
And there's, there has never been a harder assignment. And Jesus did it. He did it. He had to be like us so he could be our merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. Again, in Hebrews, that, that idea is fleshed out a little bit later, but it's, it's basically talking about the fact that we need forgiveness spiritually more than we need anything else. So the stuff that matters most, this is where Jesus has, has stepped in as our high priest. Well, how exactly does it work? It works by virtue of the sacrifice. At the end of verse 17, he was made our high priest to make atonement for the sins of the people. Boy, we can't talk about Christmas without talking about sin. Okay, that's, you, you could, <laughs> but you shouldn't. Because it helps us understand why we had to have the incarnation. Jesus became our high priest to make atonement. This is a technical term with you know, two aspects to it expiation and propitiation. And that's a lot of Asians, so let's just talk about it okay, and figure it out. Okay? One aspect of atonement is expiation, the removal of punishment, the taking away of, of wrath. Okay, So expiation, the removal of wrath, that God is angry with us for our sin, and rightly so. Sin is wrong and heinous. And it, it's, 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 it's wrong not to call it sin. And yet expiation removes the anger of God for sin. Propitiation, right, is actually the facilitation of mercy. That actually now, not only is God's wrath removed, but then we have been covered and forgiven by virtue of the sacrifice made. Those ideas are fleshed out for us in the Old Testament as we understand the sacrificial system, and then as the terms are used in the New Testament. But you need to know that both of those things are true if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. He died in your place so that God's wrath for your sin could be removed and so that you could be declared forgiven and righteous. It's so easy to get focused on other people's sin, right? They need, they, they are so bad. They, they did that, right? And, and here I just would encourage you to personalize the issue when it says that Jesus became our high priest to make atonement for the sins of the people. That means you and me. And so, yes, we remember the incarnation. We remember the incarnation because Jesus became flesh to pay for my sin. We have to own it and call it what it is. He goes on, though. It's not just about being declared forgiven and the removal of wrath. It's also for practical help. Notice verse 18. Again, here the author of Hebrews continues the idea. He says, For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted... He is able to help those who are tempted. There's two things going on here in verse 18. One is the acknowledgement that Jesus, although he never gave in to temptation, never once, not in thought, deed, or word, right? He never gave in to temptation. He experienced the reality of temptation. He suffered. That's the verbiage here, right? He has suffered when he was tempted. So you're tempted, and often you give in to temptation. But you need to understand that while Jesus never gave in, he has experienced that temptation. In whatever category of life you find it, Jesus has experienced it, right? He's experienced that, that reality of temptation in various ways. He understands your experience in temptation, right? But notice the point here, for since he suffered when he was tempted, just like we do, he is able to help those who are tempted. I think in two ways. One is... He helps those who are tempted 
in that when we fail, we look to our great high priest. So if there's a day that you struggle with a temptation and you give in to sin, when you confess that sin and you turn to Christ, you are reminded of the fact that by faith in him, you are forgiven of your sin and that he has made atonement, verse 17, right? And because he's made atonement, the wrath of God is removed for that sin. You're declared righteous. You're covered, right? And so that's the reality. And so when we're tempted and we fail, we find help with Jesus. But also, I think, in verse 18, he is able to help those who are tempted by leading us in not giving into temptation. You realize that when we think about Jesus, I think the focus here is on the atonement, but also we can look to Jesus as our model for navigating life without giving into those temptations. We can look to Jesus and we can see how you can be angry about things that are wrong and yet not give into sin. We can see how you can, even when you're tired and cranky, you can deal with ridiculous questions from people. We can see how you can struggle with having too much work to do and too little time. Has anybody experienced that? Yeah. And Jesus shows us how to navigate life and walk through all kinds of different temptations. Even, even temptations that we're embarrassed to articulate. And Jesus shows us what it looks like to say no to that temptation and to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We see a model in him. And what do we find in Jesus, our great high priest? What we find the word here is help in verse 18. He is able to help those who are tempted. And now we're back where we started. We need help. We need an advocate. We need an advocate to find forgiveness and mercy in the sight of God. We need an advocate and a helper to walk daily, right, in light of that provision. And here, in the word of God, we find that because Jesus became like us, he can help us. It may not be the most common Christmas text, but man, this is all about the relevance of the incarnation. Jesus is with us and for us by defeating death and the devil, and he's with us and for us in his priesthood, in his propitiation, and in his provision in temptation. We could say it this way, Jesus feels our pain. Listen, I I can't tell you um, how important it is to recognize that, that the statement is true that no one can walk a day in your shoes, meaning that we cannot exactly know what, what we feel like and what the experiences that we've had have done to us. We can have similar experiences in some cases, but we can't ever say, I know exactly how you feel. It would be foolish for us to think that, right? We can't say that. But you know what we can say? Jesus gets you better than anybody else. And while your friends may fail to be compassionate to you, and while your family will definitely let you down, have you met them? Yes, they will let you down, right? They'll fail you. And even those beloved brothers and sisters in church, in the the family of of saints, that they will let you down. And they won't always be as compassionate uh, to you as they should be. In, In spite of all those failures, the fact is that Jesus never fails you. He is always there with compassion and mercy. Again, I defer to my friend John Owen, who back in 1647, John Owen was a man very familiar with suffering, okay? He knew it very well, but he wrote this about this passage. He said, Whatever sufferings the soul of a man may be brought under by grief, some of us are grieving today, sorrow, 
I know we have sorrow for so many different situations. Shame. Shame because of our sin. Fear. Because we don't know what's coming. Pain. Pain caused by our failures or other fa- others' failures. Danger. We're in a situation that is genuinely dangerous. Loss. By any afflictive passions within our own sinful desires or impressions of force from without. Sin that's done to us from others. John Owen says, whatever those sufferings are, he underwent, he felt it all. I cannot commiserate you enough, but I can tell you that Jesus can. He can. And to the degree that others fail you, you can acknowledge and recognize that Jesus has gone, has gone through it, has experienced it, he has felt it all. I'm going to tell you what Satan wants you to think in those moments when one of those circumstances that Owen listed there is, is affecting you. Satan wants you to think that you're alone, that nobody understands. He wants you to think that you shouldn't, te- you shouldn't talk about it and you certainly shouldn't go to the Lord with it. And yet here is the author of Hebrews saying, Jesus was born to walk through this with you. He took on flesh to help you in the midst of temptation. This is why we celebrate his birth. Yes, he is our great high priest, the faithful and merciful one who facilitates atonement, the removal of wrath, and then the declaration of our righteousness. But in all of this, what is he doing? He's helping us. He's helping sinners. You are not alone. He is with us and for us. Those three ways, right? Priesthood, propitiation, provision, and temptation. Priesthood, he is your advocate. He is your representative. You will not find a better lawyer even in New Jersey. I mean, you know, New Jersey's famous for all the litigation. It's terrible. But the fact is that you cannot find a better representative than Jesus. He shares flesh and blood with you. You realize he loves you. It's not just that he can advocate for you. It's that he wants to. He's with us and for us in propitiation. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you are living in unrepentant sin. You need to know that Jesus has made provision for you to be forgiven. For the wrath of God to be removed. For you to be declared righteous. For you to experience grace. And when we come to faith in Jesus, we are declared forgiven. Absolutely. But as we experience our own sin in our lives, and we fail again, as naturally we will struggle with sin, we, we find when we turn to Christ, more forgiveness. We find more grace, not less. If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, I would just encourage you to understand today why we should celebrate the birth of Jesus. Understand why he took on flesh. It was so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have a friend and an advocate. If you're here this morning and you're hesitating to confess sin in your life, I just want to call you to hesitate no more. You're not going to find another circumstance where Jesus will be more inclined to help you. He is here to help you in the midst of your temptation. So confess it. Bring light into that darkness. Turn to him. Ask for help from, again, trusted believers, and you will find it. He's with us and for us in his priesthood. He's with us and for us in his propitiation. He's with us, with us and for us in his provision in temptation. <laughs> Listen, he cares enough to help you. He is tender enough to help you. He is powerful enough 
to do what needs to be done to help you, and he is qualified to help you. You won't find a better source of help. And when we're tempted, we can look to him for leadership through his spirit, through his word, right? He'll guide us. And when we fail, we look to him. We don't find an angry savior irritated at us. We find a merciful and faithful high priest who says, I know you blew it, but I took on flesh so I could bleed for you, so that you could be forgiven. I think it's very clear from this passage that the incarnation takes very seriously the reality of our own sin. And I just wonder if maybe this year you're a little tempted in the midst of all the mirth and merriment of the season to downplay the seriousness of your sin, to pretend like it's not a big deal. When we make sinful decisions, we will reap some destruction. It will cause problems. But the fact is, the sooner we confess it as sin and turn from it, the better everyone else will be and the better off we will be. So be ministered to. Jesus is with us and for us in his priesthood, in his propitiation, and in his provision in temptation. It all starts with the incarnation, doesn't it? I mean, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, the son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. The Son of God became a man to enable men and women to become sons and daughters of God. That's why he came. That's why it's worth celebrating. He came to help us, to be our victorious champion, and to provide for us. This is why we sing these particular songs that focus on the incarnation. I just think of that line we sang from Hark the Herald earlier, Pleased as man with men to dwell... Jesus, our Emmanuel. He was pleased to be made like us so that he could rescue us. Jesus is with us and for us. Would you please pray with me and we'll ask God to help us respond in faith to his word. Lord, we pause again this morning. We thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we recognize that it's easy for us today to lose sight of the reason for the incarnation It's easy for us, Lord, to downplay and minimize the seriousness of our own sin. We ask for help. We thank you that we ask for help knowing you help us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took on flesh for us, that you were willing to become weak for us, to experience the frailties of flesh and blood for us, and, Lord, to give your life and to die. And, Lord, we thank you that in your death and resurrection you have defeated the devil holds the power of death, and we don't have to fear death anymore. Lord, I pray for those who maybe are here this morning who are in slavery to the fear of death. I pray that you would free them of that by reminding them of what you have accomplished for them. Lord, we recognize that we all are in need of advocacy, of you to be our mediator, and so we ask for your help, Lord, that we would see what it means that you are our merciful and faithful high priest, that you have made atonement for our sins, that your wrath is satisfied and that we are no longer subject to judgment, but now we are recipients of mercy and forgiveness. Lord, we praise you for that. And we praise you that you help us in the midst of temptation. And Lord, I I pray for those who are here who are currently in a battle with temptation. And I pray that you would lead them by your spirit, show them in your word what they need to do. And Lord, guide them to live lives that honor you. And Lord, when we fail, we thank you that we can freely confess our failure 
because you are our high priest. Lord, we thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for the plan of the gospel. And we thank you that although we are sinners, that we can find help in you. Lord, help us to remember the purpose of the incarnation this year as we celebrate. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.